0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book. And to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain. And hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. Out of every kindred. And tongue. And people. And nation. And hast made us unto our God. Kings and priests. And we shall reign on the earth. I was well acquainted with the. Reformed soteriology, the Reformed doctrine of salvation, before I ever heard of anything like the regulative principle of worship. I had long been with the Calvinistic doctrine before I had ever heard that there was such a thing as exclusive psalmody. The first time the idea was presented to me, interestingly enough, this passage came immediately to mind. In that old Scottish Presbyterian service, they sang only the songs. And yet, here the people of God are portrayed as singing a new song. And those old Scottish Presbyterians didn't use musical instruments, but these have in their hands harps. These were the thoughts that came immediately to my mind. One of the first texts that came as that. The idea was presented to me for the very first time. We're going to come back to these questions. and What implications does this passage have for our service of song? But in order to come to sound and satisfying answers to these problems and difficulties, broad considerations are in order. Our outline is primarily twofold. We have, in the past few weeks, been looking at the foundations of principle, the second commandment and the regulative principle of worship. This morning, we are going to be moving on to the biblical history of the service of psalm, just by way of brief review, so that we might have before us a fresh and a new the regulative principle of worship, our foundation of principle. Remember that uh, we gave two definitions that are uh, logically cohering but different in their expression, and so both very useful. We have what I called the popular definition of the regulative principle if it is not commanded, then it is forbidden. The Mosaic definition is in our worship, we are to do all that God has commanded. We are neither free to subtract nor to add. When we understand this definition, we find that um, we have entered into a different realm of Christian ethics. Most of the system of Christian ethics is three categories we have things that are commanded. Those are things that must be done. We have things that are forbidden. These are things that must not be done. We have things indifferent. opera, Things that, um, uh, whether or not we do them or not do them in and of themselves, uh, has no moral bearing. Now remember, we'll see this. Uh, we have in our scripture reading this morning, Romans chapter 14. When you take things that are indifferent and you set them in a context, they rarely remain indifferent. Uh, The context will provide a a moral bearing and moral import. We'll see that uh, later on this morning. But you'll notice that the regulative principle of worship is no longer a a three-category system, but only two categories. There is no third category of indifferent, permitted, or allowed. There's only two categories commanded and forbidden. Either you must or you must not. And we know well, we have slipped conceptually when we're talking about worship, when we start talking about things that are permitted or allowed to us. Only the two categories. You must do it because God has commanded, and if there is no commandment with respect to it, you must not. We spent some time moving from the second commandment to the regulative principle. The second commandment, its express wording, is the prohibition of idols in worship. And we showed how Moses moved from the express prohibition of idols to a prohibition of anything in worship that God himself has not commanded. We watched that logical movement in Deuteronomy chapter 12. And then we consider the trans-testamental character of the regulative principle of worship. This is not just an Old Testament law. This is moral law, which is grounded in the very nature of God himself as creator and his relationship to his creation. And we confirmed our results there. And we see in as much as we saw that the regulative principle is directly taught in both Testaments, not just Deuteronomy 12, but in Matthew chapter 15 and Colossians chapter 2. And as I pointed out, it's really not just about those uh, passages, but once you have the idea in mind and you read through the word of God, you begin to see it again and again and again. Everywhere in the word of God. We finished last week with just one final consideration. Uh, It is frequently objected that this seems to be a limitation upon the just freedom and liberties of God's people under this new administration. But you remember that our liberty and the liberty of the Christian conscience is not properly defined as our freedom to do as we please, we have been set free from the doctrines and commandments of man to obey God and to do His commandments in our worship. I had planned originally this morning to finish up with the regulative principle of worship. I had a handful of other considerations. I thought maybe they might take about half a sermon As I began to sketch them out, they were probably about two sermons worth. And I don't want to frustrate you. I know that um, some have been very anxious to get on to the matter of song itself. And so here is what I'm going to do. These other points concerning the regulative principle, we we will take up as they come up in the history of the service of song. So I will simply integrate them into the history. And then at the very end, we will talk about why all of this is so important, because it has a great importance indeed. But just a couple of um, other things, maybe just one final thing. If we've understood the regulative principle of worship, we will understand that the burden of proof always rests upon the affirmative. This is true This is true in all of logic. The burden of proof almost is never thought to rest upon the negative position, but rather upon the affirmative position. It works something like this. If a man were to assert that there is gold in Alaska, the burden of proof rests upon his positive assertion. The burden of proof rests upon his affirmation. It does not rest upon the negative or upon the denial because of the extreme difficulty in uh, the proving of the negative. What would you have to do in order to prove that there's gold in Alaska? You'd simply have to produce one instance of gold in Alaska, a thing relatively easy to do. What would you have to do in order to prove that there is no gold in Alaska? You'd have to first define what Alaska is, what's its extent, How deep are you going to consider Alaska to go? And then you would have to turn over every square inch of whatever is considered Alaska and demonstrate that there's no gold in any of it. Uh, A thing very, very difficult to do. So for all practical purposes, in logic, the burden of proof has always been thought to rest upon the affirmative, upon the assertion and not upon the denial. But you can see with respect to the regulative uh, principle how much more important that becomes. The burden of proof does not rest upon denials that certain things belong in worship. Rather, all of the burden of proof rests upon the producing of a command or a divine warrant for this or that worship practice. We have certainly made a slippage in logic in general and in the regulative principle in particular if you ask a person to prove a prohibition. We can do that uh, indirectly through the regulative principle of worship, but you'd have to show that there's no command at all of any kind in all of Scripture with respect to that practice uh, before it would be a conclusive proof that such a thing is not warranted. But on the affirmative, all they'd have to do is show one Scripture commandment or one approved instance in Scripture or even a good and necessary consequence of something that's said in Scripture. We have a conceptual slippage when the uh, the argument is inverted and people are asked to prove that certain things don't belong. Remember, the burden of proof rests upon the affirmative. And in practice, uh, we do as a church and as a session esteem the burden of proof to rest upon the affirmative. We have undertaken uh, uh, to be very careful in this regard that we Do nothing in the public assembly of worship except that which we can prove positively from the scripture. And anything beyond that, we dare not go. So I hope that you've understood at least that much of the regulative principle of worship. If you've understood that much and you consider that much to be proven from the scripture, then we are all together. And we've come far enough where we are ready to begin to consider the biblical history of the service of song. And as we begin here, um, I do want to explain something. Our primary focus throughout will be the relationship of music to the worship of God. But we're not only going to do that, in some ways, we're going to take a, uh, a comprehensive look at music. It's lawful and unlawful uses as it's sketched out in the Bible. So again, our primary focus is always going to be upon its lawful use in worship narrowly. But I thought that it it might be worthwhile to look at this subject more broadly. You might be surprised at how many questions have already come into our young session concerning music. Uh, And not just its use in worship, but its just and proper use outside of worship as well. And so I intend to um, look at the uh, several instances of uh, music and worship and what those things might teach us so that we might walk away from this study with a very comprehensive view of music and its proper use. In your outline there, I have endeavored to provide a chart. a, A chart that divides... The use of music into four general eras through which we will be traveling. I'm going to uh, first make a set of assertions and I'm going to endeavor to prove these assertions as we go. But this gives you something as of a preview of where we're going. Mind you, I don't take these things to be proven just yet. I simply present this as an overview so that you know where we're going. And what I'm going to be endeavoring to demonstrate from the word of God. The first time period is from the creation of the world to Moses. I am, uh, I am a fossil. I, uh, I still believe the old uh, Usher dating. That the, the world is about 6,000 years old. 4,000 years before the time of Christ, 2,000 years afterwards. So we're looking from the creation of the world to Moses from a time about 4,000 B.C. to about 1,500 B.C. 2,500 years. Almost half of the history of the world. There's not much discussion concerning music in that period of time when you consider that it's almost half of the history of the world. But we are going to look at what information we have there. And I think by way of conclusion, we can at least say this much. There is no evidence that that song was used at all in worship during that period of time. Uh, And some evidence to the contrary. And we'll look at that. From the time of Moses, about 1500 B.C., to the time of David, about 1000 B.C., we are going to get our first recorded instances of song in worship. The first uh, recorded instance is about the year 1450 at the crossing of the Red Sea. But in general, what we will see from 1500 B.C. to 1000 B.C. is that we will have Occasional songs given to the people of God by that I mean songs given for use on a particular occasion. They are given at the hand of a prophet by special inspiration. And I want you to note that because that's the beginning of what we will see as a long and durable method by which God gives to his people songs It's at the hands of a prophet. And at that point, it's just for special occasions. From 1000 BC to the time of Christ, roughly 33 AD, you have temple music. Within the temple itself, you have a Levitical school of prophets instituted for the composition of the songs. They are also called prophets. So the songs continue to be given by inspiration. But this is a new epoch, an era, in the sense that for the first time, the people of God are given a regular service of song. A Levitical school is also established for the playing of the musical instruments. But these inspired psalms and the Levitical service of music uh, together were only performed in the temple itself. In the synagogues, in families, and in private, the Psalms were sung, but without musical accompaniment. The musical instruments were a part of the temple. And finally, from Christ to the present, very much like the synagogues of old, we have the Psalms, but no musical accompaniment. So, what I provide there is a sketch of the movement of the history. Not as yet uh, proven, but asserted, And we start pretty much in our examination at the very beginning of things. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 4. So now we are in that first period from the creation to Moses. Almost half of the history of the world, so certainly something significant and important. Although, God was not pleased to preserve very much of what was done in that era and time. Genesis chapter 4, beginning at verse 17. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived, and bare Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And unto Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begat Mahujael, and Mahujael begat Methusael, and Methusael begat Lamech. And Lamech took unto him two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah and Adabar, Jabal. And he was the father of such as well-intents, and of such as have cattle. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all such as handle the harp and organ. And Zillah, she begat tubal Cain, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. And the sister of tubal Cain was Naamah. In this little section, we have the uh, posterity of Cain presented to us. In verses 17 and 18, we have the line of, uh, of Cain from Cain to Lamech, passing through a handful of generations here. Concerning Lamech, we are given a notice that he took two wives, a thing that seems to be noteworthy and new at this point in the history of the world. In verses 20 through 22, we are given uh, the uh, the names of Lamech's children by these two wives. And we, we're not going to consider it this morning, but in verses 23 and 24, we have his very famous speech to his uh, two, wa- two wives. This text is full of what we might call firsts in the history of the world and in the development of culture and science. Unhappily, we have the first recorded instance of polygamy. As I mentioned, this appears to be a first, a departure from the first institution uh, with regard to marriage. You remember when uh, Jesus, endeavoring to clear away uh, the rubbish of nearly four millennia of history and practice with respect to marriage simply says it was not that way from the beginning with these multiple marriages and easy divorces. But from the very beginning it was one man and one woman. That that first marriage was normative and uh, regulative for all succeeding marriages. And so we know perhaps with a confidence that perhaps the first people didn't have that what Lamech did at this point was wicked and certainly had uh, dire consequences for the human race thereafter. We can say, however, that although this was never approved, under the old administration and with respect to the darkness of that age, this was largely uh, tolerated. And it would require the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ to make its sinfulness plain to humanity once again. And you consider the history of the world from the time of Christ to the present. What a great difference the teaching of Jesus Christ made indeed in this regard. And how marriage has changed in all of the world from that time to this because of the teaching of Jesus Christ. Well, this is one first. The second verse comes with Jabal, verse 20. He is said to be the father of such as dwell in tents and of such as have cattle. This language of father, it's probably probably obvious to you. Uh, You probably assume it. But this word father is roughly equivalent to something like he's the originator or first founder of a certain form of practice. We know that he wasn't the first to keep sheep. Abel was already doing that. That seems to be a practice that originated with our first parents. Brother Jobel seems to have been the, uh, the originator or first founder of what we might call the nomadic pastoral life. Where the shepherds didn't live in fixed dwellings, but they pitched tents. And they followed their cattle from place to place. So they were uh, nomadic. So Jabal is the first with respect to this. And, of course, we see nothing wrong or sinful in this. This is the uh, development of an aspect of science, practical science, if you will. What is the best way to keep uh, large flocks of animals? And, of course, if you keep large flocks of animals in one place for very long, they're going to consume the countryside. And so it's always been thought best to move them from place to place. they Consume the grass in part in one place, but before they destroy the foliage of a place, you move them on to some other place and rotate them in this way. Jabal is the father of this, the originator of this science. Our proper consideration comes with Jubal. He is the father of all such as handle the harp and the organ. He's very important in our considerations in the sense that he is called the father. The originator or first founder of another kind of science. He is here called the father of musicians. Of those that are portrayed, I want you to notice here, he's not the he's the father of people, of all such as Handel, the harp, and the organ. He's the father of musicians and the musicians' craft. And if there were no musicians before that time, we can be pretty sure that there weren't anything like musical instruments. So he's probably the first founder of both. Matthew Poole, in his English annotations, simply notes that the precise kinds of these instruments are probably lost. As part of my uh, research at the present time, large and to expand my own knowledge and, Lord willing, yours as well, I've undertaken to try to discern as far as can be discerned what these instruments were. First of all, you have uh, there in your outline a little notice. Tenor is the Hebrew word. If you're going to learn one Hebrew word in this sermon series, that's probably a good one to know because that's the most common and frequently musical instrument that we will run across it is normally in our authorized version translated harp although i think that the evidence probably suggests that rather than being a harp it is more like what we would call a lyre. say so what's the difference not very much but a harp you normally think of as a freestanding triangular instrument it's got a triangular flame, frame and the strings run from two sides of the triangle a lyre is a, uh, has a frame of four sides, sometimes symmetrical, sometimes asymmetrical. The strings run from from two of the sides in parallel, and it has a kind of a sounding board. Uh, somewhat like a guitar, but not uh, something to catch and capture the sound and amplify it, the amplification of the strings. Uh, there is uh, great evidence that this form of instrumentation is very ancient but with Poole, we should be cautious here because there were liars of a great many and you shouldn't think that just because you've got a stringed instrument with four sides that you've got precisely what jubal had remember here that moses and about 1400 BC is writing about what Jubal was doing probably a full two millennia earlier uh, in terms of uh, probably closest analogies in Moses uh, day. You can imagine the difficulty of this. Imagine um, imagine finding, fast forward in the earth's history 2,000 years from now and imagine that you have an inscription of a rock band like a maybe like a little wood carving or something and you see that it's got four pieces you've got uh, you got a drummer and you've got a singer and then you've got two stringed instruments one with six strings and one with four strings but if you don't know the precise thickness of those strings you won't be anywhere close to reproducing the sound that was actually produced by those instruments not even close Uh, So you can see the the great difficulty in doing this kind of research and work. It's one thing to say that we think that we found a liar. It's a completely different thing to say that we have any idea how those strings were tuned, what their pitch was, and what sort of sound that they produced. What kind of volume were they capable of uh, producing? Did they play in uh, chords or one note at a time? All of these things are lost in history. So as we go through these things, I always want you to remember, and it's actually a very important and significant fact, you just need to put it in your pocket for the time, that the music of antiquity for us is a, loss. And that's, a that's a very important fact. We'll come to its importance, and its importance for worship in the future. I should also say that the Syriac and the Arabic uh, both concur that this was a liar of some kind. Our authorized version in calling the second um, instrument an organ will be very misleading for us as contemporary readers. By organ, they do not mean um, the pipe organ, like what we talk about. There wouldn't be anything like that, I think, until the Middle Ages. But what the what the King James authors are hoping to evoke in your mind are pipes. That produced their sound by by wind blown through them, which is how the organ actually got its name. It produces music in much the same way, except you don't produce the uh, the sound by blowing into it with your own mouth. It was produced by um, uh, you know by these ventilation compression systems that forced air up into the pipes and thus they produced their resonance and their and their sound. This organ, Uga in in Hebrew, was more like a pipe, uh, not a flute like in the, in the uh, modern sense of the term, but more maybe like a pan flute. It could have been a single pipe or um, a series of pipes pitched to different notes so that you could produce multiple notes. There are evidence of this, uh, very ancient evidences of this kind of instrument. This is a very ancient thing indeed. And it's not unusual to find very ancient uh, uh, inscriptions and pictures of, interestingly enough, some sort of a lyre player coupled with some sort of a pipe player. And no- normally the pipes are actually two. It's a very common uh, uh, inscription from antiquity. But you have to remember when we're talking antiquity, we're talking about anything from about 1,000 to about 1,500 B.C., you have to remember that Jubal is almost two millennia older, and that's pretty old. You also have the difficulty of Jubal's world would be destroyed by a flood, which would be a pretty decisive break in things. It makes the history very difficult to recapture. I think interpreters speak very wisely and well when they when they take all of this as being what's called a synecdoche or a synagogical expression basically in in evoking uh, instruments of strings and instruments of uh, wind something like all sorts of instruments Jubal is the father of all kinds of instruments two are simply mentioned in order to evoke all kinds he was the father of all kinds the ancient Hebrews interestingly enough I don't think that this can be proven from this text mind you but very interesting. The ancient Hebrew, Hebrews thought that Jabel was a maker of idol tents and that Jubal filled those tents with idol music. And maybe Tubal Cain made his contribution by providing the idols themselves in as much as he was a worker in metal. This is Cain's corrupt line, mind you. And corrupt, I do believe we can prove, but that they were corrupt in this way, I, I think, is more than what we can prove. We have one final first here, or maybe not a first. That's probably not right. But Tubal Cain was a, was a, made advances in metallurgy and in metal work. It's not said that he's the father of these things, but rather he advanced that science. All in all, we can look at this and we can say that Cain's line uh, was quite fruitful, not spiritually, but with respect to the development of culture and science in, uh, in a lot of ways. What sorts of conclusions can we draw about music? We can say this for sure, that musical science developed relatively early in the old world. It it is true. It's very interesting. Jubal is, of course, a handful of generations removed from the beginning of the world. And yet you have to remember that when Jubal arrives on the scene and, and grows to manhood, most of the first generation is still there. And would be for most of the history of the old world. It's a remarkable thing that you really only need uh, two generations to get from Adam to the flood. And so Adam would still no doubt be alive and well in the earth uh, when Jubal is born. So this is a relatively early development in the history of the world, although it's hard in Cain's line to be sure exactly how long it took for these many generations to be produced. You can actually tell in Seth's line, and you could guess by analogy, but if they had children younger than Seth's line, it could throw you off uh, significantly. It's probably enough of us to say that this is a very ancient science. Uh, The world was not very old when this science began to develop. However... We can at least say this much, that there is no evidence that music was used in the worship of Jehovah at this point. This much we can say with confidence, that there is a lack of evidence. And you have to understand what I'm, what I'm saying here. and I'm, My language is very intentional. We can say for sure that there's no evidence that music was used in the worship of God. There is some evidence and indication to the contrary. I would not characterize that evidence as conclusive. The word of God as it's been delivered to us was not intended to be an exhaustive record of how the ancient peoples worship. That's not its point or its purpose. It comes to us to instruct us how we are to worship, not so much to instruct us on how the ancient people were to worship or how they did worship. But there is some evidence that this was not used in the worship of Jehovah from the beginning. You say, well, how, how do you know that? And what's, what seems to be that indication? And remember, this is, this is the first part of first bit of evidence that we will develop. Uh, probably we will get to it next sermon as to why I think that there's more than just this bit of evidence that uh, Jehovah for the first two and a half millennia of the world was not worshipped in song at all but first of all consider um, some general structural things about the broader context here very important in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 uh, you have the first preaching of the gospel in the context of the cursing of the serpent And I do believe that old John Gill is right. And we'll come back to John Gill when he says that the Lord Jesus Christ himself preaches. And in the cursing of the serpent assures mankind that he himself would set an enmity between two lines. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. They had by this time become natural allies. The woman and the serpent. But that by his grace, he himself would interpose and set an enmity or a hostility between them through redemptive grace. In other words, mankind had given himself over to the devil and become the devil's allies. But he would rescue men out of that, ally them to himself and thus make them enemies of the devil and his works. In Genesis um, uh, chapter six you have the intermingling of the two lines. In some ways, the the wall of enmity breaks down. The net effect of all of this is the near extinction of true religion in the world. It comes to be limited to just one family, Noah and his family. And this is the fall and the destruction of the old world. When the sons of God, the seed of the woman, intermarried with the daughters of men, the line of Cain. It was almost a complete destruction of true religion in the world. And God, in his great anger, destroyed the old world through a flood. These are your two bookends. The introduction of the division of the line and the great hurtful consequences when those lines began to merge because of the religious declension of the godly line. In chapter 4, you get the history of Cain, And his line, so now we've come into the middle of that history again. You see immediately the enmity between the two lines, inasmuch as Cain kills his brother Abel. So you see the the hostility between the two. And you remember what uh, John teaches in his first epistle, that Cain hated his brother because his deeds were righteous and his own deeds were wicked. You see the great hostility between the two lines. Interestingly enough, it's in Cain's line that the musical science develops. And now put that fact in your mind. It's not among the sons of God that the musical science develops, it's among the sons of Cain. Now, by that I don't mean to say that the musical development is wicked in and of itself. It's given to us in the general context of cultural development, shepherding, metallurgy, and music, and very much like. metalworking and shepherding, I do take music to be lawful in and of itself. And we'll, we'll vindicate that claim as, as we go forward. But I just want you to notice at this point that the music isn't developing among the sons of God. It's developing among Cain and his offspring. And that's a significant fact. Um, now back up from that just a little bit. Beginning at 425, you have the notice of the birth of Seth, the replacement for Abel. And the, uh, the re-commencing uh, of the seed of the woman. Look there at uh, chapter 4, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also there was born a son. And he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. I want you to notice here that uh, Eve, remember 3.15, expressly identifies Seth as her seed, the replacement seed for Abel. She recognizes him as being part of that elect and godly line. It's uh, re initialization and recommencement after Abel had been taken away. I want you to notice also that in this, in this family there was the practice of worship. It says then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. This doesn't mean that Adam and Eve did not. It's clear that they were worshipers of God. Uh, if we take Eve's testimony it's clear that Seth, were, uh, Seth was a worshiper of God. What's intended here when it says that Enos, in the days of Enos, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. It likely signifies that at this point the godly line had multiplied to an extent sufficient enough that they began to gather in uh, public assemblies. Now it's not just the the worship of uh, a nuclear family or an extended family, and of course everybody in some sense is going to be an extended family, but uh, but they begin to gather now in, in great numbers for worship, and this is the first notice of what we might call public worship. If we don't take it in this way, it would escape me what else it could mean, because we know that Adam and Eve were believers by their own testimony and worshipers of the true God. But Seth was a believer and a worshipper in the true God. So, what what changed in the days of Enos? If it's anything other than public worship and the gathering of a great many families to worship, it's hard for me to imagine or conceive. But I'll leave that to your consideration. At the very least, we can say that in Seth's line, they are worshiping the true God. Now notice the contrast. Worship is practiced among the Sethites, among their families, in the gathering of their families. Here, it's uh, the worship is uh, styled calling upon the name of uh, uh, the Lord. This is um, this is the language of prayer. As you proceed in the in the Old Testament, to call upon the name of the Lord is to pray. So we know that they are praying, and this is likely used synecdocally as as the entire worship of God. In other words, um, the one aspect was was talked about to evoke. The entire worship. Uh, they call it synecdoche when you refer to a part, but really what you have in view is the whole of, of what they did. What were, what were the people of God doing in their worship at this time? Very interesting. I'll just leave this to your thoughts and your, and your own considerations. I think we can prove at least three things there was preaching. At this point, there was no such thing as the reading of the word of God because none of it was written down. But what God had revealed orally to the fathers was publicly proclaimed. We know this with a certainty. Noah is called a preacher of righteousness before the flood. Enoch is called a preacher and that he taught and preached the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of time. So we know that there was preaching. We know that there was prayer, a calling upon the name of the Lord. And we know that there was sacrifice. How did they know that they were to do these three things? And again, there's evidence that they continue to do these three things. Uh, whether or not more could be proved, I'm not sure. I think it has to do, and just think about this and consider this, and consider old John Gill when he when he said that, uh, when it said that God walked in the cool of the garden in the day, he takes this as a revelation of the pre-incarnate Christ, but that Christ in some way, represented a a human nature to Adam and Eve at that point. And that he uh, then uh, uh, revealed himself, not only that he would come and be incarnate, something I do believe that Adam and Eve knew and believed. Inasmuch as Eve, when Cain was born, said, I have gotten a man, the Lord. In other words, they have, they have some notion or sense of the incarnation and its necessity for redemption. Where would they learn that? How would they know that? Uh, I think there's much to suggest in, in as much as God has said to have walked in the cool of the day in the garden. He shows himself to be prophet, priest, and king. King in as much as he arraigns them before his judgment seat. Priest, or prophet inasmuch as he preaches to them the gospel for the first time. And priest inasmuch as he slaughters animals and takes their skins. Provides for them what they could not provide for themselves, which is a spiritual covering. Now some people would say, oh well, this is too much. How would they get the notion of sacrifice from that? Remember from the very beginning that God taught Adam and Eve to think in a sacramental and symbolical fashion with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and a tree of life right from the beginning God begins to communicate with Adam and Eve in symbolical and sacramental fashion interestingly enough at that very first if you will worship service provided over by uh, the Lord Jesus Christ himself what did you have you had preaching if they responded you would have had prayer and they would respond. We don't have a recorded response there, but they would respond to him in faith. And you have sacrifice. All right there at that very first uh, gathering and assembly of uh, a church with an interest and the covenant of grace. But however you take that, I just suggest that for your consideration. Um, However you take it, we can be sure of the three facts. They were praying. They were preaching, and they were sacrificing. And they knew to do this in some manner. The question is how, and is there enough in Genesis 3 to suggest how they knew that those were the things to be done? Well, consider those things, and the Lord grant you understanding. Uh, remember, and some other things we can be sure about. If we were right that the regulative principle of worship If we were right that it's moral, then already it's governing worship there right from the very beginning. They would only be doing the things that God had commanded. It is possible that God had revealed and commanded other things that he wasn't pleased to record for us and our use in the scriptures. He might have said other things to them. It's true. But whatever whatever they were doing in their worship, we can be sure that they were doing it because it had been commanded. And inasmuch as up to the time of Genesis chapter 6, they were called the sons of God. This is a note of approval on God's part with respect to how they were worshipped. It's as if until they intermarried with the daughters of men, they were properly bearing God's image. And he was pleased with their practice. Now, notice. Notice. If God had commanded them to be using song, you would expect the musical science to be developing in their line as well. If it was, there's no evidence of it. And as we'll go forward in redemptive revelation, we'll, we'll present other things. But just notice the noteworthy fact at this point that if God had commanded them to be singing and to be developing musical instruments to be used in worship, we are quite surprised to find that the father of music is among the canines and that the musical science is developing in that line rather than in the line of the godly. So just put that in your pocket. It's, it's incomplete and it's fragmentary. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to push the evidence beyond what it can bear. But as we go forward in Revelation, what we will find is that uh, there's some level of surprise when the people of God outside of the prophets are invited to participate in the service of song one final point and then we'll leave off uh, uh, rather I, I should say it's a, it's a reiteration of something that I wanted to make sure is clear if the musical sciences that was developing among the Canaanites was used for idolatry and there's some ancient tradition concerning that among the Hebrews, then it certainly was illicit. Um, God wouldn't be pleased with any music that was used in the praise of false gods or in the praise of idols. But if it was used as a pastime, it could be altogether uh, lawful and fine. We will see that next week beginning in Genesis 31 where we will, um, where we will turn our attention. But at this point, just, just take those facts with you. And you're, you're altogether up-to-date and you're altogether current. You say the pastor spoke a lot of words and he hasn't tried to prove very much yet. And that's fine. I just want line upon line and precept upon precept. If you've grasped the regulative principle, you're good. If you've made the historical observations that so far we have no evidence that song was used among the people of God. And we have the noteworthy fact that the science was developing among the Canaanites. You have all that we need uh, up to this point in order to proceed on to the history of Jacob. Very interesting that music isn't really mentioned again until 2,000 years uh, later. No doubt it was developing and it was in use at all that time. But even then, it's still not in the midst of the worship of God. You won't get any reference, mention, hint, or indication that was used in the worship of God until the crossing of the Red Sea. And when was that? About the year 1491 B.C. The world at that point was 2,600 years old. Two and a half millennia. And we have the first record of the people of God. Worshipping by means of music. So try to keep all of those things in view. Next week I do suspect we'll make it to Jacob. And what we might be able to learn. About a lawful use. Outside of worship. And I do suspect that we will make it to Moses in the Song of the Sea and enter into that second uh, great epoch let us pray together